want to start this morning. Who's got their Bibles with them? Give us a wave. <laughs> My son's got a massive grin on his face. Going, I've got mine. Who's got their Bibles? Oh, we've slipped since last time. Paper Bibles, encourage you to bring your paper Bibles with you. So this morning I want to start by asking a rhetorical question. Have you ever been accused of something that is simply not true? Have you ever heard from a trusted friend or a family member, maybe, that someone's accusing you of something behind your back? Have you felt when... Um, you know that those accusations are true and you maybe try to defend yourself but your accusers don't listen to reason. Well today we'll be looking at the first of uh, the first part of an event where Jesus himself was falsely accused and we'll also look at his decision to challenge his accusers in order quite simply to correct their illogical thinking. So if you have your Bibles with me, with you, turn to Luke 11, and we'll be carrying on from verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and people marvelled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armour in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word the challenge that is within your word, but also the comfort that we can draw from your word. And I just ask, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, that you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you want to speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, just to mention, we may go over slightly uh, than quarter past today, okay? So, just in case, quarter two, sorry, not quarter past. How are they? I hope you're all right. Quarter past. So the journey to Jerusalem continues, and at some point on that journey, Luke tells us that Jesus stops to perform an exorcism to cast out a mute demon 
from this man in whom this demon has chosen to take up residence. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has exercised demons. We've seen it many times before. And I'm sure at some point we will have other stories and other situations whereby Jesus does it again. And that's okay. Because the truth is that every time Jesus expels a demon from someone, every time that Jesus is faced with the forces of darkness and he overpowers them, not only does it publicly broadcast the truth that he has power and authority over Satan and his minions, but it also shows the powers of darkness that God is well and truly reclaiming that which Satan has tried to steal. Heaven on earth advancing to destroy an already defeated enemy through the mighty hand of Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. God be praised. So Jesus expels the mute demons from this man and he begins to speak, which is confirmation that the exorcism is successful. <clears throat> Excuse me. And most of the people standing and watching marvel at this great miracle. Could this be the son of David? Matthew's account, someone says, so someone says in Matthew's account of this situation, this event. Could this be the Messiah from God? Verse 16 tells us that some try to test him by asking him to perform more signs and more miracles. Now we shouldn't be too harsh on those sceptics who are asking for more signs and miracles because if you go back to Deuteronomy 13, I'm not saying do that now, but if you go back to Deuteronomy 13, God himself says to his people to test the prophets and the dreamers and the signs and wonders. So we don't want to be too harsh on those sceptics. But then we read back in verse 15, those who say, But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. In Matthew's account, he says that these people are Pharisees. In Mark's account, they are scribes from Jerusalem. But the obvious question <clears throat> that we need to ask is who is Beelzebul, the prince of demons? in which Jesus is supposedly in league with. Well, unfortunately, there isn't a great, great deal of information in scriptures about Beelzebul. And the, the origin of the name is debated within scholars. We do know that there are alternative forms of the name Beelzebul, such as Beelzebub, Baalzebul, and Baalzebub tongue twisters. And though we find certain references to this name in the Bible in 2 Kings, in Mark 3 and in Matthew 12, there is little explanation of its meaning. The first account of the name is found in 2 Kings chapter 1. 
Israel's king Ahaziah has fallen from his bedroom window for those who know the story and he's badly hurt. And he decides to send messengers off to the Philistine city of Ekron to seek from the God of Ekron as to whether he will recover from his injuries. Now the name of the God of Ekron is Baalzebub, made up of two words, Baal, which can mean Lord or to be Lord, and Zebub, flies or the flies or fly, singular. So here we have this name that can, can be rendered Baal of flies or Lord of flies. And this deity is said to have power over flies, either to send them or to drive them away. Baal Zabob, translated into what we are reading here, um, but in the Greek, is our familiar name, Baal Zabob. And this is the name, as we've read, that they are insulting Jesus with. But why are they insulting him? Well, by Jesus' day, scholars believe that the meaning of Beelzebul has changed to something along the lines of Lord of Dung or Lord of Filth. Those of you who know flies, you know that they are quite attracted to dung and, and to, to filth, right or wrong. And, and this, this name became not only a word used for mockery, for disrespect, for bitterness by the Jewish people, but it was also a name that was associated with Satan. So the name that was, was once associated um, and given to the worship god of Ekron, the lord of the flies, is now associated with Satan, the lord of dung, the lord of filth, uh, and the prince of demons. Hence why Jesus' mockers say that he casts out demons by Beelzebul, by Satan, the prince of demons. But not only is Jesus being accused of performing this exorcism in the name and the power of Satan, which was in itself blasphemous to the Holy Spirit, because it was the Holy Spirit's power, but this was also a serious accusation, as it was in that day, because under the Jewish law, practicing magic in uh, Satan's power was a capital offence. Uh, punishable by death. In this instance, it would be by stoning. So this supernatural event has taken place, but Jesus, knowing the thoughts of some who had accused him privately, because that's what the scripture tells us, they didn't shout out, you're doing this in the, in the power or the name of Beelzebul or Satan. They're doing it hushed within the crowds, talking it, it towards each other. So knowing their thoughts, he accused them, uh, accusing them privately, he felt the need to respond to their accusations. Now, according to the charge against Jesus, the power behind Jesus is not divine. The power behind this exorcism was demonic. It was demonic, i.e. Satan, or Beelzebub, prince, uh, chief of demons. So the real question 
that Jesus needs to tackle here is in whose power was this exorcism performed? Was it in the power of Satan? Was it in the power of God? Jesus responds with presenting the crowd with two logical trains of thought. What if by Satan? What if by God? So let's look at these. What if by Satan? Jesus begins by showing them how flawed their accusations are by using two analogies. The first one, let's look at this, verse 17. But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, that gives us another clue, doesn't it, of Jesus' divinity, his deity, because he knew their thoughts, said to them, firstly, first analogy, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Now, any kingdom, any land, any country that is divided or disagrees internally will inevitably lead to its own downfall. Yeah? If you think about it, we could, uh, we could say this is civil war, internal civil war. Think about the House of Lancaster and the House of York in the English Civil War. The War of the Roses, all fighting for the the throne of England. It's the same sort of principle. It was, it was bloody. It was, it was disastrous and damaging. So that's our first analogy. The second analogy, he goes on to say, and a divided household falls. Now anyone who has been in the unfortunate situation to have known division within a family knows how destructive it can be. But then he asks them a rhetorical question. Verse 18, he says this, And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? In other words, if Satan is actively undoing the work in which he is behind in the first place, he will inevitably create his own downfall. In essence, the real question Jesus is challenging them with is this. Do you honestly think that Satan is behind this? Do you honestly think he could be behind this? And the implied answer is of course not. Not by design anyway. And why not? Well, quite simply, because Satan is hell-bent on destroying God's human creation through any means uh, possible, and in this account, through possession. So when in this moment Jesus reverses the indwelling of this demon and this man's speech returns, this cannot be by Satan's doing, because if it was, then he would be working solely against himself thus inevitably bringing down his own destruction, which we know to be illogical. It's illogical. But then Jesus backs this up with a second question intended, again, for them to ponder, to think about, to think through. Verse 18, For you say 
that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? He's throwing the thought process back their way. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they're physical sons, they're their own physical sons. It's quite probable that it's referring to their associates. If you're thinking uh, that the Pharisees and the scribes, it's thinking of their associates, their, maybe their Jewish exorcists, which there were, though we don't know a lot about them, not in scripture anyway. It could be their own disciples. It could even be Jesus' disciples, because they were sons of Israel, were they not? Unfortunately, again, Scripture doesn't give us much of the uh, info on the other exorcists or other people performing exorcists in Scripture. The closest accounts uh, of anyone dealing with an evil spirit on behalf of another, to my knowledge, in the Old Testament would be David playing the harp for Saul. King Saul had lost favour of God and God, out of a way of judgment towards Saul, sends this evil spirit to torment Saul. And the only way that Saul can find any relief is by having this harp played for him and that's where David comes into the story and plays the harp. But that's not really exorcism. And excluding Jesus and his disciples, the closest in the New Testament, I would suggest, would be the seven sons of the high priest Sceva, if I've pronounced his name right, Sceva, in Acts 19. For those who might not know the story, the seven brothers go on this this mission, you know, to, to, to cast out demons, but they don't do it in the name of Jesus. They do it in, uh, in the name of Jesus, who Paul knows. I mean, anyone, I mean, come, that's just flawed in itself, isn't it? When you're not standing firm in the name of Jesus, but you're standing firm in the name of the Jesus that this other Paul knows, in the hope to do what Paul does, you're, you're on a sticky wicket. And what does the demon say to him, or them, sorry? Paul I know. Sorry, Jesus I know. Paul I recognise, but who are you? And then it turns into a messy situation when this man jumps on them and beats them all up and they run off scared and all of that stuff. But again, it's, these are the two closest that, that, that I could see that come close to someone exercising a demon out of another, at least in the Bible. The point Jesus is making here, though, is that whatever Jesus' accusers say about him, they must accept for anyone else who is doing the same thing. I.e., if Jesus exercises demons by Satan, then so do the other exorcists, including the Jewish exorcists. But if other exorcists or the disciples exercise by God's power, then so does Jesus. There is no middle ground. It's either or. You can't have one rule for one and another rule for another. 
So Jesus has presented his what-if-Satan argument, which is clearly flawed. Um, he now moves on to present his what-if-God counterclaim. What if by God? Now Jesus delivers this in the form of an invitation. An invitation to his listeners to consider that the true power behind this exorcism is by the hand of God Almighty. And in doing so, he challenges them to contemplate the consequence if this is true. Verse 20, but if, Jesus says, there's the invitation to consider. He's inviting them to consider about what he's about to say. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then, there's the word that transfers into the consequence, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Amen kingdom of God has come upon you. Now remember the Jewish nation were waiting for the Messiah to be sent from God. This military figure who, uh, who would come to drive out the foreign occupants, in this case the Roman occupation, and re-establish the glory days. Many people, including the religious leaders of the day, saw Jesus as just another rabbi but also a troublemaker. So this is a bold statement that Jesus is making. God has come upon you. It's a bold statement. In essence, he's saying, I have shown you how the power behind this exorcism cannot be by Satan. And if it's not through Satan, then it is by God. And if it's by God then the kingdom of God has arrived among you through me, through Jesus. That is a wonderful truth that they may not have got back then, but we know is true today. Amen? Through Jesus' life and ministry, God's kingdom had come in part upon the earth. It wasn't fully revealed and still isn't revealed and won't be until the end of days. Jesus, who is God, not only came to establish his new kingdom upon the earth, and I love this, he also came to steal back those from Satan's kingdom and place them in his own. That's a hallelujah moment, isn't it? The wonderful reality is Christ's kingdom is still upon the earth today, alive via the Holy Spirit, working in and through every God-fearing, Jesus-loving Christian upon this earth. Just think about that. I've said it many times, and I'll continue to say it, we carry the kingdom of God where, with us wherever we are. That's a one of responsibility. Good job we don't have to do it in our own strength. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit. But that's a wonderful privilege that we carry with us every day. Through the guidance of God the Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we continue the mission 
of Jesus Christ upon this earth in reaching those who are lost and bound by evil and sin with the transforming and liberating power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is your remit. That is my remit. That is the only remit as Christians we have. The jobs we do, the study we do at university and colleges, that is secondary. That's all secondary. Our primary focus is to continue the work of Christ on this earth, wherever we end up in job or college or universities. Not the other way around. Getting excited. But then Jesus backs up this truth statement through a simple parable about a strong man. It says this, verse 20, when a strong man, who's the strong man? Who do we think the strong man is? No. Who's the strong man? Satan. So when a strong man, i.e. Satan, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Influence and false control upon the earth. But then we go into verse 22. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, who's the one stronger? Amen. Jesus. When one stronger, Jesus, attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armour in which he trusted and devoid, divides his spoil, i.e., Jesus claims for himself that which the devil once claimed. Amen. Friends, that was you and me once. That was you and me. We were once at the mercy of Satan, spoils of his reign upon the earth. But then we heard the transforming message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we heard Jesus calling us to repent and to surrender our life to him. And now we live forgiven, redeemed, and righteous before God the Father. Blessed with newness of life and a hope now and a hope for the future, all because of what Jesus did on that cross. Aya, hallelujah indeed. All because of what he did on that cross. Can I invite the band up, please? Jesus then finishes with a rather compelling statement which leaves his listeners with no illusion, no illusion as to what Jesus expects. He says this, verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather, scatters. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather, 
scatters. Now, I believe this statement is very clear. But if it's not, let me help with a simpler analogy. You are either with Jesus or you're against him. There's no middle ground. You're either with him or against him. You are either pro-Jesus or you are con-Jesus. You are either righteous or you are unrighteous. You are either heaven-bound or you're hell-bound. You are either a gatherer who supports the work of the ministry in sharing the good news that brought you to salvation to others and help people gather the, 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 the lost sheep into the fold, or you are the opposite, who is against Jesus and who is doing what you can, knowingly or unknowingly, to scatter God's sheep. There is no middle ground. That is the whole thread that runs through this passage. Not only is Jesus needing to correct their illogical thinking, but he was saying there is no middle ground. You can't, I can't do it in the, in the name of God, but then also in the name of Satan. Quite a compelling ending to this section that he speaks of, and we'll continue this on next week. To finish it, giving them an ultimatum, you're either with me or you're not. So to those of you here today who have not surrendered your life to Jesus, I'm going to be very bold and quite to the point here, and I'm going to say do not delay, because currently you are an enemy of Jesus. I know that's harsh to hear, but that is the truth. That doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean he didn't die for you. But at the minute, you are in direct rebellion to God, which means you're at enmity with Jesus. Do not delay. Accept Jesus. Surrender your life to him. Repent. It's not all that bad. Now, it's not a promise of a wonderful new life because we will face challenges and there will be heartache. We all know that if we've been Christians long enough. But the promise is that God is there with us throughout and gives us that hope now and that hope for the future. You know, come and speak to us after the service. The prayer area will be popped up after as well. Come and speak to someone in the prayer area. But don't leave it you do not know what happens this afternoon. None of us do. Only God. But for those here today who are followers, I believe this passage can give us hope and comfort. The truth is that just like we've seen in Jesus' passage today, we will face accusations. We will face resentment for being followers of Jesus. We will. People will disagree with you, even hate you for the message that you have, and they just won't believe it. And most of the time it will be because the gospel message and those who deliver it, which should be you and me, don't align to what the culture expects us to. Now there's a lot of the reason that this will happen. 
is because Jesus' message is counter to culture. Remember what Jesus says, though. He says in John 15, verse 19, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Of course it would love you as its own. You're not fighting against it. Buts. We love our buts, don't we? No chuckling. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Friends, if Jesus says this time and time and time again, don't expect that we're going to have a free reign throughout our time on earth as Christians. Because we won't. Some of you have already experienced this. And if you haven't, you will. If you're living faithful to sharing God's message and living as he's calling us to live, you will face it. Of that I am sure. But also remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on his Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You standing upon the righteousness of God and being faithful to him, whatever the consequence, you are blessed. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, on my account. Isn't this what happened in this story? Jesus was accused. It will happen to us. You will be accused, even falsely. But if you are standing upon the truth of God in Jesus' name, you are blessed, whatever comes against you. And then he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Today we have seen an example where Jesus himself was falsely accused. Take comfort in the truth that Jesus totally gets whatever struggle in faith you have gone through or you're going through. He totally understands it because he faced it before we did. That's why he can relate. That's why he understands. But be inspired that Jesus didn't hold back in sharing the truth. He kept pushing forward, and so should we. If he is our master, and we are his disciples, then we mimic the master. He pushed forward, so do we. The truth is, the reason you're experiencing kickback is because you are standing faithful on God's words. Now, you may not see justice in this life for what those people have done to you. You may not. But justice is coming. They will face justice because no one escapes God. They will face justice. And you may not see reward for your heartache in being faithful to the gospel in this life. But it's coming, because God promises it's coming to those who are faithful. Be of good courage, whatever is facing you. Stay strong, stay planted in the word. 
Stay planted in prayer. Support each other. And know without a shadow of a doubt that God is with you and he will always be with you until he returns or he calls you home. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, and Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had together. Lord, we thank you that we can learn from our Master Jesus. Lord, it gives us hope and courage that even Jesus himself was falsely accused and had to defend your honour. And Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit you, you would equip us and inspire us and give us that same courage and boldness to stand upon the truth of your word in the name of Jesus, whatever we are faced with. Because, Lord, we do it for you and we do it all for your glory. But I also pray, Lord, that I know that there are people that have had hard times with showing their faith. And I just ask that through your church, through your people, through your Holy Spirit, you bring comfort to their hearts and peace to their souls. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.